Welcome to the Public Morality. Before Joe Biden became the nation's 46th president, he had already proposed a $1.9 trillion relief package to address the coronavirus pandemic and the resulting economic crisis. Included in Biden's proposal was a call to raise the federal minimum wage to $15 per hour. It's been 12 years since the federal minimum wage has been raised. The minimum wage is perennially a hotly contested issue that is often debated at the margins. On one side, it is a necessary component to provide a livable wage. On the other, it's a job killer that will hurl the country into recession. As often with debates in the public discourse, nuance is overlooked. To discuss the implication of the minimum wage, we are joined by one of the foremost thinkers on the subject, Professor David Newmark. Professor Newmark is a distinguished professor of economics at the University of California at Irvine, where he also directs the Economic Self-Sufficiency Policy Research Institute and, along with William Washer, co-authored Minimum Wages that covered the effects of minimum wage on employment, schooling, training, income inequality, and poverty. Professor David Newmark, welcome to The Public Morality. Thanks for having me here. Mm -hmm. Let's begin by having you provide background on the origin of the minimum wage and what was the rationale behind it. That's a good. That's a good question. Uh, in the U.S., and we were we were actually not the first country to pass a minimum wage. We we did it in the late 1930s. I think there's there's probably dis different views on what exactly was driving it. Uh, the the benign view, I think, is that this was meant to provide a wage floor. The usual story. It was meant to perhaps uh, counter the fact that very low skilled workers didn't have much bargaining power. Um, they were kind of at the whim of employers, you know, no, inst no institutional support like labor unions to, um, to try to prop up their wages. There are other views that are, that are less benign. I'm not as I'm not an economic historian, so I'm not in as a position to really uh, uh, weigh the, you know, the empirical evidence and the historical interpretations. But, you know, one story you certainly hear is that with the migration of, of African Americans out of out of agriculture and into industry, this was a way of kind of uh, preventing wages from being bid down, and 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 therefore to some extent was 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 in part to help prop up the wages of whites. Um, I, again, I, I I don't know enough about the, the you know the, the, the economic history to assess that, but it certainly is an argument put forward. Mm -hmm. Well, well, coming to the to the present moment. Uh, President Biden included in his COVID relief proposal $1.9 trillion a call for the increase in the federal minimum wage of $15 per hour. Predictable political rhetoric notwithstanding. What are your thoughts, sir? So I, I have a few thoughts. I, mean, I, I, I First of all, I think it's worth noting uh, the kind of sea change in the debate. When people first started to talk about a $15 minimum wage, when was the fight for 15? It's probably now at this point, five, six years ago, it first got started. It was viewed as absurd, right? The federal minimum wage at that time and still is $7.25. So putting aside the economics, uh, the change of the political climate, the number of states and localities that have gone that high and now a couple a little bit higher, and the endorsement by the Democratic Party and not just the very liberal wing of the Democratic Party, of a $15 minimum is, is pretty amazing, actually. It's, a, it's whatever you think of it economically, it's a, it's a, it's, I think it's a political success story for the advocates and why that happened. Uh, I think people will be, will be studying for a long time. What do I think about it? Well, I, I think 
I tell you basically two things. I, I, I think I certainly understand the sentiment. Inequality has been rising like crazy. That's, you know, people, <laughs> we've, we've just big, big, lived, lived through a big episode of what, you know, what's true and what's not. Uh, that's true. That's supported by numbers. How you interpret it is obviously, you know, up, up to up to an individual. But inequality has gone up tremendously, and the public is responding to that. And indeed, both parties are responding to it. I mean, you know, some part of Trump's appeal was, I think, to lower income people who've been left behind by this as well. Whatever you think he was appealing to, uh, but you know, Republicans typically didn't didn't cater to that group. So I get the sentiment. I, I think the, the I think it's worth before I talk about what the data say. I, I think it's worth emphasizing, uh, because people don't always draw this distinction, uh, that we need to think about the difference between how we wish the world was and how to best get there, right? So the response to inequality, and even before this, you might have been more egalitarian, but even more so now, is, boy, we wish incomes were more equal. We'd like to get from here to there. Now, the minimum wage sounds like a really simple way to do that, Obviously, you, you literally say you can't pay wages below a certain level and on some dimension that has to reduce inequality. But I think the real question is, is that the best way to do it? And are there other ways? So, you know, why might it not be an obvious way to reduce inequality or to be the most helpful way? Really two main reasons. One is, while it is debated, I think the evidence is still pretty overwhelming that there is some job loss from a higher minimum wage. And when you talk about a $15 minimum wage, in some of the states that haven't raised the minimum wages, and they're, of course, the low-wage states, Alabama, not, not exclusively, but Alabama, Mississippi, some southern states, Wisconsin also, as it turns out, but you know, on average, low-wage states, uh, a minimum wage that high will raise wages for so many workers um, that on the one hand, the potential benefits seem attractive, but on the other hand, the potential costs are larger. The other reason minimum wages are not necessarily the most effective way to address the root problem, which is really inequality of family incomes is that a lot of minimum wage workers are not in poor families, are not even low-income families, who? Teenagers, for example. And a lot of poor families, even with working-age adults, put aside retirees, don't have anybody working, right? That's the, that's the biggest source of poverty. Um, and the question, I think, is how do, we, how do we address that problem? And it doesn't mean minimum wages can't be part of the picture, but I think it's viewed as an, an overly broad and overly simplistic approach to the problem, and one that certainly isn't going to encourage work um, uh, and probably is going to put some people out of the labor market. And a, a, a portion of the, of the argument, I'm speaking specifically about the minimum wage, in support of uh, increasing the minimum wage has been the decades-long gap between productivity and wages. What are the regions that wages have lagged behind productivity for several decades mm-hmm. now? Well, that's a really interesting question. So, so that's, that's another one of these things that we, we should call facts, right? And the, and and, and what underlies that fact is that you can always think about the national income, right? by which I mean, what does is, what is the economy in total produce as having shares that go to different groups? And we typically divide those shares into labor share and either the rest or sometimes we divide the rest into maybe capital and rents, but we don't have to worry about that. But labor share has been declining. Which is a that's and that's why productivity growth has risen faster than wage growth because more of the gain has gone to the owners of capital um, and not to not and not to the workers. So that's happened. Uh, why that's happened is a really good question. I mean, there's I would say there are really a few factors people talk about. One is 
the decline in institutions, maybe, namely labor unions, by no means a recent decline. It's been going on for you know, 40 plus 50 years. But unions obviously interfere with the market, but in a way, that's not a bad thing, but that's in fact what they do, but in a way that, you know, takes some of the some of the residual that 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 could go to owners, could go to workers, not clear what's going to happen. And, and, and of course, they bargain for some of that. That's clearly, I think, part of the story. Some people say there has been an emergence of what we call monopsony power, which means essentially the, the well, we're very used to talk about monopoly. That is a big firm has a lot of power. It's big relative to the product market it sells in. Think of the antitrust cases now against Google and Facebook. Monopsony is the other side of that. It, it's, it's firm having a lot of power in the markets where they buy labor. And if they do, they can push wages down below essentially workers' productivity. I would say there's a, there's a bit of emerging evidence that that's actually true. It's intriguing. Most of us, I think, are not yet convinced, but I don't think we can rule it out either. The third change, I think, is a little a little hard to think about, which is, you know, maybe <laughs> some people might not like to hear this, um, but maybe the productivity of workers has, even though overall productivity has gone up, the productivity of a lot of the workers we're talking about, in particular the wage earners, hasn't gone up so much, right? And now, why might that happen? You know, think about what happens when you go from sort of a manufacturing economy to an economy that I mean, I'll. I'll I'll simplify it, you know, stereotype produces software, right? So, um, you know, now it takes a lot of resources and talent and all that to figure out how to make a good car. But once you've done that, people have to keep making the cars. And even though we automate some of that, there's still a lot of people making those cars. They're pretty high paying jobs. They're not necessarily people with, you know, even college degrees, let alone advanced degrees. Um, but to produce every car takes a lot of people. Now, it also may take as much research and talent and ingenuity to create a good piece of software, right? But once it's created, there's not a lot of decent paying jobs in, in, in replicating more copies. It's almost, it's almost costless, right? So it may be that, in fact, what we're, not seeing any, we're not really seeing any deviations of what, what individuals get paid from what's happened to productivity. But the people who have the skills that are rewarded in that more of an information kind of economy, those people are not a lot more productive just because of what we do in this country now. And there aren't as many of those manufacturing jobs and the people with less education are, you know, making coffees and flipping burgers and delivering pizzas, um, which is never going to pay as much as making cars and, and trucks. So the structure of the economy can actually can actually change things in such a way that is, you know, simply doesn't work as well for those with. Uh, less education or less of whatever abilities the modern economy rewards, that's a real problem. And, and policymakers need to, we, I mean, every, every, every industrialized society wrestles to some extent with, you know, how do we guarantee enough income for the people towards the bottom of the income distribution? What's our standard? What's our criterion? How are we going to do it? We do less than, you know, the Scandinavian countries, obviously, and we do more than some countries. But if there is more, if, if the economy is a bit more bifurcated in that way, and there's every indication that it is, we may need to rethink how we uh, deal with people at the bottom. You know, we're used to thinking about assistance for those not working. And obviously, we still have that for disabled and injured and all that. We don't have as much for just the, the non-disabled not working, you know, welfare. But maybe we need to think more about if you're a low-wage worker, it's not necessarily because of anything you did or any bad decisions you made. That's the way the economy is now. And we need to do more to supplement the incomes of people who work simply because the economy is now generating, you know, more low wage jobs and more high wage jobs, not as many middle wage jobs. 
So, I mean, I, I think you may have just answered part of it, but, but what's your response to the argument that had wages kept pace of productivity, actually $15 per hour is below what the rate would have been, as some have estimated, had those two, uh, been, those two uh, wages and productivity been aligned? Well, that's true. So, so the minimum wage has declined in real terms, which is, you know, how, how an economist says what you just said, right? That that um, had we had we sort of kept pace with either either price inflation or wage inflation, you know, take your pick. They're not that different. Um, uh, the minimum wage would be a lot higher now. And in fact, many countries index the minimum wage to 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 some some measure of either price or wage inflation. And about ten or so states now do. Um, so 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 we're we're somewhat unique in certain our federal policy is somewhat unique in just kind of, you know, idiosyncratically raising the minimum wage now and then, usually more because of some political calculation than anything else, which is probably not great policy. Um, I would say, though, that I, I don't think the argument that simply because it's declined in real terms, it should be higher is necessarily a good argument. And here's why I actually wrote a, a column on this for The New York Times economics blog a, a while back when when they had such a thing. And I pointed out that, yes, we have let the minimum wage decline in real terms, but we now have other policies that support working people. So think about forgetting. Let's put aside sort of payments to people who don't work, not, you know, benefits, you know, like the old AFTC program. But what do we do to make sure that people who are working earn more than the market might just deliver on its own? So, yeah, the minimum wage has declined in real terms. But we now do have this this policy called the earned income tax credit, which is now bigger than welfare. And it basically supplements your pay uh, up to, in fact, with three kids now, four, 5% up to a certain amount. So it's a big subsidy and the check comes back from the government and it's not a, it's not a tax credit. You know, some tax credits are worth more to rich people because they pay a lot of taxes. This is refundable. So you get money from the government, even if you don't owe anything. It's a very generous program. It's got bipartisan support. And I think it does have bipartisan support because it's it's kind of like the, the closest thing to magic dust economists have come up with in a long time. It encur- not, not, it's not perfect, but it encourages work because you don't get it unless you work. Like, it's effectively the government saying your wage will be higher because you'll get what the employer pays you plus plus more. Uh, and the other great thing about the earned income tax credit is it's based on family income. So it gets around this minimum wage problem that not every low-wage worker is in a low-income family. The ITC is based on low-wage families. If you, you know, if my spouse works and I have a high income, we file jointly. She doesn't get anything from the ITC. But if she's a single mother and works and was low income, especially if she had kids at home, she would get a pretty generous subsidy. So we've, you know, we've changed how we provide the floor for working people. And if you look at at least people with kids, because the ITC isn't worth much if you don't have kids, but at least people with kids. The, what I show is the, the kind of wage floor we provide with the combination of two policies, the minimum wage getting less generous and the EITC really getting very generous. We've kind of kept things pretty, pretty, pretty stable in real terms. We've just changed the structure of how we do it. Now, it, it seems, and this is more of a public discourse uh, question, but it seems to me that the argument for the minimum wage is sometimes transmuted into an argument for a livable wage, and are those the, are those the same in this particular context? Well, that's a good, that's a really good question. So, so, so the federal policy and what what states do, you know, that that are these broad wage floors, right, are, are always called minimum wages. And philosophers in the Catholic Church used to talk about a living wage many decades ago, and what they meant was a wage that would support a family, you know, some however you want to define that exactly. 
And then in the, in the 90s, we actually started to have these things called living wage policies, which were adopted by cities. And these were these came from this perspective of if you do business with a city or get financial assistance from the city or our city contractor, we should be able, we, the voters, the taxpayers should be able to demand that you pay a livable wage. And those, when they were first implemented, were really high. Some of those back in an era when minimum, minimum wages were much lower were in the 11 or 12 or $13 range. So they were meant to kind of provide a minimally reasonable income floor for a family, which has never really been the the calculation underlying the minimum wage. I really couldn't tell you what the calculation underlying the minimum wage is. As I said, it's been pretty arbitrary. But but that's the difference. Um, you know, I think the discussion now when people say $15 an hour would get a family of four out of poverty if you if you work full time, which we would because it's about $30,000. Not a lot of money, but less than seven twenty-five dollars for a full-time worker. I think when you start to talk about $15 levels, those things become similar, but people uh, still haven't I think the, the phrases are still kept separate for whatever reason. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with University of California Irvine economics professor David Newmark, and we're discussing the implications of raising the minimum wage to a proposed $15 per hour. Professor Newmark, is it possible to make a linear comparison with wages paid to fast food workers in Denmark in order to bolster the argument here for raising the, the minimum wage. You, you, people always like to talk about what Denmark pays. Well, you could talk about Denmark. You could talk about most other industrialized countries, at least in Europe, not Japan. Minimum wages, uh, certainly until a few years ago, were a lot higher in some of those countries. Now we're catching up, not the federal yet, but of course many states, around 30 plus states, now have higher minimum wages. Um, I think the, the question you're asking is, I, I mean, I'll tell you a story that, that sort of struck me a long time ago. The, when I, one of the great things of being a professor is you get to travel a lot, and even better than that, other people usually pay for it. But I, I go to Europe a lot for research and conferences. I remember one of the first times I went to Germany, I was, you know, aside from the work and all that, I was just kind of observing because that's what I do. I'm a social scientist. And, you, you know, you, you wander around a German city and you, you see a lot of things. Nobody ever crosses against a red light and stuff like that. But, but, but one thing you see is, and I don't think it's because it's hidden. I think it's literally because it's not there. You see less signs of abject poverty. Um, and you also see, yeah, there's rich people there for sure, but you see just less signs of extreme wealth. And, you know, they have adopted a system, as you raise the question of Denmark, as have the Scandinavian countries to some extent, of providing a much higher floor below which you can't fall in one way or another. If you're working, it's through the minimum wage. And then, of course, if you're not working, it's through other kinds of government support. And those those societies have decided, it seems to me, to say, look, we if you're working, we're going to make sure you get paid more. But we recognize that there might be somewhat fewer people working because of that high wage floor. But we're going to then be more generous with with those people. So so for whatever reason, those societies have said we're we're comfortable with, you know, higher mandated pay in the labor market. Some more people may be on government programs because they can't find a job and running those generous programs. And what struck me, this is the point of my story, was and maybe this sounds like incredibly naive now. But remember, I was in my, you know, in my late 20s. So I was more naive. Um, Just last year. uh, (laughs) yeah, <laughs> just um, You know, those countries work. They're perfectly nice places. Now, yeah, you probably it's harder to get as rich, and if you do, the government will take more in taxes. So, if you're trying to be a billionaire, the America is the best place to live. Maybe if you're trying to be a millionaire, but those societies clearly function. It's not like 
this isn't, you know, Soviet Russia. It's not like, you know, I mean, think of this false debate we have in this country that right, every liberal policy is socialism or communism. It's absurd, right? These countries are they're, they're capitalist countries. They're very market oriented, but they're just kinder and gentler to use, you know, President Bush's words. And, and they are, and, and, you know, but they're willing to have a high wage floor, have higher taxes, support people who don't have jobs. Is the standard of living a little lower than ours on average because of that? Maybe. But inequality is lower, too. And I think, you know, I think nobody wants to eliminate inequality by making us all poor. But if you pose to people, are you willing to reduce that you can't eliminate inequality, but are you willing to reduce inequality for a slight decline in average standard of living? A lot of people, myself included, would say absolutely. Is the minimum wage debate, and you sort of alluded to this earlier, and I want to come back to it more specifically, but shouldn't the minimum wage debate uh, be part of a larger conversation that includes, you know, for example, those communities that were once dominated by a single industry that have been forced to diversify, and many of those jobs that replaced those industries uh, that moved don't pay the same wage. Like, I'm thinking Maytag moving out of Iowa, you need a whole lot of Starbucks to, to to match what Maytag was paying. And if we're going to have that judicious conversation, don't we also have to factor the impact of globalization along with the, with the decline in unions? Your thoughts? I do think that, as I said, the minimum wage, to some extent, to a large extent perhaps, is a response to rising inequality. So then you say, okay, if it's a response to rising inequality, what has caused that rise in inequality and what else should we do? And, and I think you're right. All those factors matter. I understand the support for the minimum wage, but why at least – with my intellectual hat on, you know, I, I'm somewhat critical is it's just a simple it's the simple solution to jump to because those other problems you raise fixing them or or kind of working our way around them is either really hard or really expensive or both. Right. So what are we really talking about? We're, you know, all the minimum wage, earning income tax credit, UBI, you know, pick your favorite. They're all about redistributing income. Right. To say, let's take some whatever amount it is, a little more from the rich and give a little more to the less rich or the poor and make society a little more equitable. Is the minimum wage the best policy to do that? I don't think so. But all the other ones require people in government to vote their hand and say, yes, let's raise taxes. And that's really hard to do these days. It's getting a little easier, hopefully, but it's always going to be hard for Republicans uh, as long as people like Grover Norquist are out there, you know, primarying them whenever they do that. So uh, that's not to say, so, so I, I, don't mean, I don't mean to be cynical. I mean, a Democratic politician may say, look, I understand there are other policies that are better, but we can't make those happen and we can't make this happen. Um, so let's at least do something. So maybe that's part of where it's coming from. But I think that's the issue that that. So even the earning of tax credit, which I think we could make even more. Gen it's generous already. We could make it more generous, maybe in a world where the economy generates some really high wage jobs and those people don't have to worry about and some really low wage jobs. So even the people working full time aren't making what we deem an acceptable standard of living. Maybe we need an EITC that, you know, is paying a lot of extra income to them, but that money has to come from somewhere and you got to raise taxes to do it. The minimum wage is, is a cop out's too strong a word, but it's a way for a politician to say, look what I'm doing without saying, and I voted to raise taxes. Now, some of the other problems you talk about globalization, you know, dislocation, that is factories leaving towns. Those are even tougher problems, right? Because, you know, most economists will tell you we want free trade and most economists will tell you and everyone else, you can't stop a company from getting up and leaving. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it, unless we don't have private property. But if we want to have those those dynamic features of capitalism that in the long run deliver a lot of good, we've also got to cushion it for the people who 
you know, who suffer because of that. So we could say, yeah, a factory is free to get up and move, even free to get up and move to another country. But we need programs to help people move and to help people get retrained. And those are hard to do and really expensive. And and we don't probably don't have a really great idea how to do those. But without the political will to actually do that, I think you run into this problem that capitalism, you know, there's the old phrase creative destruction, right, from Schumpeter. And, and what that means is it, it's a tremendous vehicle for generating higher incomes and wealth and growth. And there's ever, never been anything like it in the history of the world. But does that mean it helps everybody all the time? Absolutely not. And some people get hurt. One of my old advisors at Harvard, Richard Freeman, used to say, you know, automobiles are great, but if you were a buggy driver, you know, a horse buggy driver, they really sucked, right? Because you were out of a job. Now, would we not want to have cars? Of course not. But maybe we need to kind of, like we provide other kinds of social insurance, unemployment insurance, workers' compensation, we need to help cushion the blow when these kind of creative forces blow and you're the one they blow over. Uh, my, my, my next question actually comes courtesy of Senator Chuck Grassley. I, I just read an op-ed that he uh, wrote this morning, and it, it prompted me to ask you this question. Uh, I know economic history is not, not your area of, uh, of expertise, but, but when we have raised the minimum wage, do, do you know of any time that, that, that the economy has slid into a recession? The economy has never slid into a recession because of the minimum wage. We've, the business cycle swamps the minimum wage by a factor of, I don't want to say infinite, but 100 or 1,000 to 1, right? I mean, Ted Kennedy, when, when, back when he was alive, when the, when the minimum wage was being debated, would always ask this question. You know, he'd say, you know, you economists keeps coming and saying, if we, if we raise the minimum wage, employment's going to fall, but we have 10 million more jobs than we did a decade ago. But that's not the point. The point is, would we have had... 10.1 million jobs instead. I mean, and, but that's the magnitude we're talking about, right? Population growth, the business cycle, all those things swamp this. And the question is what the big word we all like to use in research is the counterfactual, right? We want to compare it to what would have been otherwise, um, which of course we can't see because we, we did in fact raise the minimum wage. But that's the idea that we think, you know, when we, when we do research, for example, um, the sort of classic, sim- most simplistic, but very powerful research design is think of a state or two that raised the minimum wage and a state or two with similar economies that didn't. Um, you know, what? how do they change from before the minimum wage goes up in the first set to after? So maybe we can control for the business cycle because they both are buffeted by the same business cycle. And maybe did employment fall in the states that were that were treated with a higher minimum wage versus the other states? Doesn't mean employment in total fell. It just means it fell in relative terms. Between um, raising the minimum wage being an absolute job killer and nirvana that lifts everyone up to a livable wage, what are the real- What have been the realities? I should I should ask uh, in terms of ra- raising the minimum wage. You know, it, it it hasn't killed the economy, nor has it been livable wage nirvana, and it has been unintended consequences. So, what what does that look? What what will that look like if we raise the fifteen dollars an hour? Well, let me tell you what the, what the research says, because it's, it's a good question. We haven't actually discussed that directly. And then I can speculate about 15 an hour because we don't actually have it. OK, so, you know, what what the research shows, roughly speaking, is if you raise the minimum wage, let's say by 10 percent, then employment of of the very low skilled, the ones who are actually whose wages are affected by that falls by about one to two percent. So that's not a huge effect. And because it's only it only falls on the very low skilled, that's why it's not big relative to the business cycle. That's why we don't send the economy into recession when we raise the minimum wage. Um, so employment falls a little. But of course, in that, many people's wages are raised. Right. So there are both. As I always say, there are winners and losers. 
right, uh, from this policy, as there are from almost any policy. When the business community says you're going to kill jobs, I say, yeah, you're probably right, but that's not the only issue, right? If we if we adopt climate change policy, you're, you're, an, oil refi- yeah. you're an oil refinery worker, you're going to lose your job. Now, should we still do it because it's good social policy? Yeah. So, so saying some jobs get eliminated does not mean we shouldn't raise the minimum. Saying some people's wages go up doesn't mean we should. We have to weigh the cost and benefits. One way to weigh the cost and benefits is to look at what it does. What does it do to the poverty rate? Okay, that you know, one of many ways of measuring how we're affecting the income distribution. And the, it, there's, it's very hard to find what we call a statistically significant. That is a a result we should be very confident about. Uh, results saying that the minimum wage actually does reduce poverty. The evidence maybe points a little in that direction, but it's 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 it, it's also very strongly consistent with no real effect on the poverty rate, and that's because the winners and losers probably wash out to some extent. So I don't look at it as either an unmitigated disaster, which it isn't, or as delivering a lot of benefits. I view the minimum wage as what it kind of results in. Cl- what it's closest to is moving money around among low-income families to some extent, and also moving money you know out of the pockets of obviously. Some businesses, um, but that doesn't necessarily help 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 a lot of people. So that's what the evidence says. Now, what about fifteen dollars? Anyone being careful should only speculate because, in the past, our, the increases we can study and learn from are a lot smaller than that. A dollar here, seventy-five cents there. I certainly worry, as do many economists, even those who are you know more friendly to minimum wages than I am, that going to fifteen or at least going there quickly, and we probably wouldn't go there quickly. We'd probably phase it in. But going there pretty quickly is going to imply much worse effects than the past research shows. Why? Think about a business that has a bunch of workers at a bunch of different wage levels and whatever else they, they use to make their stuff, you know, materials, machines, or whatever. The minimum wage goes up. It pushes up wages for a few of their workers. Um, maybe they can absorb it in profits because they'll still be making money. Maybe they can make a couple other small adjustments. If you run a restaurant, you make the portions a little smaller. You don't clean the bathrooms quite as much. There's actually evidence that happens in Seattle, believe it or not. Um, whatever it is. But now you raise the minimum so much that you know 40% of your workers now cost a lot more. Your other channels of adjustment might not really exist. And if you're in a business with a pretty low profit margin, you can't go to negative profits. You're not going to stay in business. So my concern is you, you know, raising the minimum wage in a sense linearly raises the cost of it, but you're also multiplying that by a bigger and bigger and bigger portion of workers who are actually affected, and that's what worries me. So we have two groups of listeners right now. Uh, one group is uh, supportive of the minimum wage. Another group, obviously, is opposed to the minimum wage. So first I want you to talk to the group that is opposed to the minimum wage. Tell them... For those who are uh, opposed, what is in their argument? What about their argument that they're ignoring? Right. So I, I hope there's a third group of people who haven't decided yet, but maybe there isn't. Well, <laughs> we're just, we're just going to pretend we live in a binary world. <laughs> Seems pretty binary these days, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, the, uh, so I, I think the, the, the simplest case that the opponents make sometimes, in fact, quite often, citing my research, is the minimum wage is a job killer. And, and the, the response I make to that is, yes, it costs some jobs. Uh, it's not a huge number in this. Now, it could be with 15, but at least past evidence says it's not a huge number. It's not going to throw us into recession. Back to our earlier conversation, if we pass the minimum wage now and wait five years, we're going to have more jobs in five years than we do now. Maybe not. Maybe we'd have even more. So, so first of all, you know, how big is the effect? Um, and no one 
is talking catastrophe here. Uh, and second is some people gain. Like if you if you still have your job and your hours haven't been reduced by very much, and there will be many people for whom that's true, right? None of these estimates say most affected workers lose their job. They say a small percentage of them do. So most people will have higher wages and therefore higher earnings at the end of the day. Now, you know, oh, we asked me to address the opponents. So that's what I would say. Um, uh, I'm, there I'm, there I'm, are definitely some winners here. We're going to get to supporters. So now what would you say to supporters? What are they ignoring? I think what supporters are ignoring are often that there is some job loss. So some people are going to be a lot worse off, right? Because for every guy, if we raise the minimum wage 10%, you know, you get a, a small raise. That's great. But losing your whole job, your whole source of income is a big hit. Now, there's fewer of those people, but it's a big hit. And the second thing they're ignoring is I think, I mean, because I've talked to a lot of people about this. When I say to people, you know, raising the minimum wage doesn't help poor families very much. They look at me like, how is that possible? And then I go into this, these two points I made for you earlier that a lot of minimum wage workers aren't in low-income families. And a lot of poor families don't have any workers. If you actually do a back-of-the-envelope calculation – uh, to get a dollar to poor families, and I, you know, and they're not the only low-income families to worry about, but they're the lowest-income families, costs about $5 in terms of the overall increase in the wage bill that the minimum wage induces. That's a pretty lousy trade-off. If you think about tax policy, right, High, you know, raise income taxes, redistribute it via the ITC or some other way. I mean, all taxes distort behavior, right? I mean, that's what economics shows us. But but it might cost a dollar thirty or a dollar forty or maybe a dollar twenty through the tax system to get a dollar from a rich family to a poor family. So the minimum wage is a really efficient, clunky, you might say, way to help poor families, help low income families, both because it doesn't it doesn't target the help to them very well, um, and it's really inefficient because a lot of it for the same reason, a lot of other people, for every five dollars that in total employers are paying in higher wages, for roughly four dollars are going to families that aren't poor. I, I like to tell the story. My daughter gets a little embarrassed, but we live in San Francisco and we were in high school. She was in high school. San Francisco first did its, its city minimum wage increase. This was 06 or 07 or something. She had a job working in a little gymnastics school. She came home and she said, I'm so excited. You know, the, the, the city passed a minimum wage increase. I'm going to get a raise. And I said to her, I said, Noe, I will bet you that I make three times what the guy you work for makes. Right. And he's going to pay your higher wage. And I already give you an allowance and pay for your food and give you a house and we'll send you to college and all that stuff. And that's the that's the point about the targeting, right? You should a single mother with two kids, whatever, kids or even no kids, make more in our society if she's low skilled? Yeah, I mean, her, you know, on average, the what they make in our economy is 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 sort of abhorrent, right? Should a teenager in an upper middle class family make more? And, and should a should a small business owner maybe say Walmart should pay it? But should a small business owner pay it? I can't think of a reason under the sun. Um. I want to talk about some of the um, uh, complex, some some more of the complexities. In San Francisco, fifteen dollars an hour means nothing because San Francisco pays more than that, as does um, New York. And and then, uh, do you worry that the proposed fifteen dollars per hour in say in low wage communities um, might put people in the in in the in the middle of the of the medium the medium salary level? And, and is is that in and of itself sustainable? Well, that's that's the concern that in in low wage states, let's let's come back to communities within states, but certainly in low wage states, fifteen dollars. I mean, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna have a bigger impact than it is in San Francisco, for both better or worse. More people's wages will be pushed up, 
but I worry that, that as a result, the job loss will be much greater. And I don't, you know, a, a minimum wage that's going to reach up to close to median wages, I have questions about, I mean, how, how, how sustainable it is or whether we're going to really regret doing that. Now, interestingly, we, you know, because the federal minimum wage hasn't changed since 2009, right? So we're now getting on 12 years. 12 years, years yeah. Um, um, but, but as has happened in the past, when the federal minimum wage stagnates, many states jump in, and now more than ever, 30-plus states have a higher minimum wage. But we have evolved, not necessarily deliberately, to a system where high-wage places have higher minimum wages and low-wage places have lower minimum wages. And whatever you think it should be, is 725 too low? Maybe it should be 9, maybe it should be 10. You know, the minimum wage should be higher in San Francisco than in, than in Tuscaloosa, right, for exactly that reason. Um, you know, some people argue we should... I mean, researchers wouldn't like this because we love all the crazy variation. It's great for studying it. But, you know, from a from a good policy perspective, what would make more sense is, you know, decide what percentage of the wages you want to target. Should it be the 25th percentile, the 30th percentile, whatever you think it is, and make that roughly the same everywhere. Right. And, and then probably index it, too, so we don't have to keep screwing around with it every year. Well. What, I'm, what I just heard you say is that the notion that the minimum wage should be raised legislatively, whether local, state, or, or federal, in, in some words, in some ways, is, is antiquated. I, I, I don't know if it's antiquated because we still do it that way. Well, other countries don't, but it's, it's probably a bad idea. I mean, look, we last raised the minimum wage during the Great Recession. Probably not the best time to do it, right? And now we're probably going to raise in the middle of the pandemic. Probably even worse, right? <laughs> you know. So why didn't we do it three years ago? If we're if we're gonna do it, you know. Now, I'm, now I should be fair. There's not a lot of research that says it's you know. There's a big difference at different points of the business cycle. It's hard to tell, partly because we just don't. Fortunately, we don't have that many business cycles, right? They don't happen every every once in a while. But you know, my sense tells me raising it in 2009 when businesses were fragile was a good idea. And boy, if businesses were ever fragile, it's now. I mean, I know when I back for till a few weeks ago and we could actually go eat outside in San Francisco at least. You know, I, I'm an economist. When I sit down, I start asking the, you know, who's the owner and can I ask you a couple of questions? That's what I do. You know, and, and they'll say, you know, we are, we are just hanging on. We're, we, you know, except unless you got a great takeout menu, we're just hanging on and we're, we're even, maybe we're losing a little money, but we're going to try to stick around for six more months or we care about our workers or some combination. But, you know, when there's no margin to soak that up in, I worry a lot more. And, and, but that's because, it, it's really driven much more by the political process than either depoliticizing it completely by indexing it, or at least maybe it's a pipe dream, tying it more to the you know natural conditions to the economy. When you talk about the indexing, I mean, I'm thinking right now. I'm in California. What by 2023 we'll have $15 statewide. San Francisco's already passed that. I mean, each. I mean, our economy is very different than it was, say, in 1969. So, so shouldn't we be factoring that as well? Well, we should, and that's, you know, but that's, I mean, it, it, we should. It, it's not entirely clear what the response is. So so inequality has gone up. Now, one response to that is, oh, we need a higher minimum wage. The other response is that means that a higher minimum wage is going gonna, is gonna to put more people out of work um, because, the, you know, the high school graduates who didn't go to college used to be in manufacturing jobs. The minimum wage didn't matter for them, and now they're in retail, and the minimum wage does matter for them. On the one hand, it means it'll deliver some benefits. On the other hand, the retailer might decide not to not to keep as many employed. I do want to come back to one thing you said about, you know, the San, it doesn't matter in San Francisco, the minimum wage. San Francisco is a little unique because San Francisco has a, you know, a, a very small, low-income community. But you said you're from Oakland, which is a more typical American city. 
you know, rich people and a big middle class, but also a lot more low income people. And I still worry about $15 minimum wages, even in California, in very low income neighborhoods. I mean, you know, where, where unemployment rates of minority youth, they're not, I mean, they came down obviously during the, the long boom we had, but historically they've been very high and I imagine we'll see them very high again. Um, you know, there it is a problem. Uh, and you have a combination of a lot of things, you know, tough, tough to start a business, all kind, you know, higher expenses, all kinds of things. Not the same kind of customer demand if you're in a, a large, a, a large low income area. Um, you know, the same heterogeneity we have across states, maybe not quite as extreme. We have within region. Think of L.A., right? Yeah. Better I'll, example. Than I was thinking a whole gamut, very low income places to very rich places. I was thinking that this is between, say, Irvine and Bell, California. I mean, that's a, that's a big gap economically. <laughs> uh, right. That's right. I That's can right. I can see it very difficult for Bell implementing the fifteen as opposed to Irvine. Uh, right, right. Um, finally, well, I mean, I, I get the sense I, I've had the sense prior to the conversation where you've only enhanced it that part of our discussion about the minimum wage is that we're trying to view it through the prism of perfection, um, when in reality it really comes down to making you know competing choices and which choices are we willing to make. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I, there, there is no perfect policy. Um, and that's why, what, you know, I, I was doing an interview with somebody yesterday. He said, you know, if you, if you were in Congress, the $15 minimum wage came up, would you vote yes or no? I said no. But does that mean I wouldn't vote for any minimum wage increase? No, because, you know, I do want to address the inequality problem. I think it's foolish to think we can do it all through the minimum wage. I think, as I've indicated, other policies have a much more important role to play. But I also recognize the limitations on those. And there's probably going to be some combination. My preference would be a great, and I think the research bears this out, a greater reliance on other policies and politicians having to sell to us, the voters, the need to raise taxes to pay for some of these things. But I also recognize um, that's that's difficult. And because of that, politicians are always going to run to something which is at least a partial solution and an imperfect solution but a lot easier for them to do because all they got to do is vote for it, not come up with the money. Does the number get in the way? Like you hear, I mean, $15 an hour, and well, you, you, said, you mentioned Alabama earlier, that's, that's over 100% increase. Is, 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 is it the number that gets in the way as opposed to if you did the indexing, you're just doing a percentage, and so that number could vary from state to state, from community to community? I, I think $15 literally came out of the blue for no good reason, right? Um, you know, it, it, there's no... There's no economic rationale. No economist can tell you that's the, we like to talk about optimal this and that. No one can tell you, and I don't think anyone will, that's the optimal minimum wage. Um, I think the notion, I think we, we would have a more intelligent discussion of this. I don't mean you and me, I mean, I, I mean the public. If we said, look, you know, we don't think a, a person's wage or a person's earnings if they work full time or pick your, pick your exact number should be, you know, this much, but more than X below the median or more than X below the average, and let's think about a minimum wage like that. We'd still be arguing about what that number would be, right? But it would be a somewhat more rational discussion, and it would automatically deal with some of these things we're talking about, that, that clearly that would mean a lower minimum wage in lower wage states. And, and that, that obviously, if, if you're going to raise it, that's obviously a sensible thing to do. Now, you could say, <laughs> you know, that's kind of where we've arrived, but the federal minimum wage, of course, hasn't changed in 12 years, so maybe it should catch up a little bit. Um, but the system of states doing it on their own would still leave in place, um, perhaps more haphazardly, but still leave in place, um, you know, higher minimum wages and higher wage places uh, and the opposite. But I do think 
a federal policy that kind of indexed it to something about state conditions is not unreasonable. And we, we have a lot of other policies that index into state conditions. We extend unemployment benefits if state unemployment rates are higher for longer. Not, not that uncommon and not, not at all unreasonable. Professor David Newmark, I want to thank you, sir, uh, for laying your expertise and joining me today on The Public Morality. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) ¶¶